So this is a conversation with a member of the Crime Thing Collective who wrote an essay published in April of 2019 entitled Against the Logic of the Guillotine, Why the Paris Commune Burned the Guillotine and We Should Too. This logic is fairly common in online left-wing spaces and I wanted to have someone who could speak to why it's problematic and why we need to be doing better if we truly believe in liberatory politics. If you want to support this podcast, you can donate on the Patreon and buymeacoffee.com pages, the links of which are in the description. And if you cannot do so, you can help by just sharing and leaving a review. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. So, if we can start with just you introducing yourself, if that's okay? Yes, I'm just a participant in the Crime Think Workers Collective, uh, one of many participants. More than a year ago, I was part of the group that worked on this text that we'll be talking about today, Against the Logic of the Guillotine. Awesome. So let's start. I'm going to start with reading part of your intro uh, to your piece, Against the Logic of the Guillotine, and uh, in, our, in our conversation, I'll try and make it clear on my side as well why I find it so uh, moving. So we can add a bit to your piece, a bit of a conversation on the Middle Eastern context, which is where I come from as well. So I'll start with this quote, uh, which is part of your introduction. The guillotine has come to occupy our collective imagination. In a time when the rifts in our society are widening towards civil war, it represents uncompromising bloody revenge. It represents the idea that the violence of the state could be a good thing if only the right people were in charge. Those who take their own powerlessness for granted assume that they can promote gruesome revenge fantasies without consequences. But if we are serious about changing the world, we owe it to ourselves to make sure that our proposals are not equally gruesome. So this is in the context of discussing the communard, the participants of the of in uh, sorry the participants in the revolutionary paris commune of 1871 and how they destroyed and burned the guillotine that was stored near uh, one of the prisons in paris i think the main prison in paris so uh, uh, i have to admit i had actually did not know that they did that which was very interesting so why did they do that uh, what um what did the guillotine represent to them and how does it differ from this so-called logic of the guillotine as you as you called it in the piece well, the interesting thing for us about the prevalence of guillotine memes over the last few years is that they're largely divorced from a, a sense of the actual history of the guillotine, right? And some of us have a revolutionary interest in history and so have spent a lot of time you know, researching the French Revolution, the, the Paris Commune, the, the various French revolutions, actually, and, mm-hmm. and other struggles. You know, and for almost the entirety of French history, the guillotine has served conservative French uh, monarchies, imperial and otherwise, and uh, conservative French republics as an instrument of state murder. It's, It's never really played a revolutionary role, you know, except for a brief period. And even then it was used by uh, state forces inside of a, a state revolution. So the, the guillotine doesn't have a history of being used against state power at, at any point in French history. Um, but all the same, the guillotine has been popular among people who today would describe themselves as being critical of, of the state or even anti-statists. So it was interesting for us when we saw this guillotine meme 
taking off you know, all of these different guillotine memes uh, becoming viral, to go back and reread the history and see what the actual history of guillotines has been you know, in, in France and elsewhere around the world. And one of the most moving uh, historical anecdotes that we came across was in, in France in 1871, at the beginning of the Paris Commune, that people went uh, immediately after they had toppled the, the conservative Republican authorities in France. They, they went, they drew out the guillotine uh, and, and burned it you know, at the uh, Plaza Voltaire. And, um, and they did this to, uh, to immediately declare that they were against the, the French authorities regaining power, that they were against the, the threat that they would be punished for participating in this uprising with, uh, with execution. And they also did it to, as a gesture showing that they were not intending to use the guillotine to try to exterminate their enemies. So this is a very important moment in the history of the Paris Commune, actually, because it, it takes place before the, that moment in French revolutionary history had crystallized into uh, Adolphe Thiers and the, the conservative Republicans carrying out the execution of tens of thousands of revolutionaries as occurred in May at the end of the commune. It was a moment when it was not clear how far the revolt could spread. And so we have two different ideas here about how revolt can take place. One is that you get control of the state apparatus and you use it to exterminate the enemy. You know, this is a, a, a binary idea. It's a very, it's an idea grounded in Western ideas about identity where mm-hmm. you have the, the good guys, which are you, and the bad guys, which are the, the other, you know, with a capital O. Uh, and, and then you have the, the means of extermination. Right? And then the alternative to this, that the, the best aspects of the Paris Commune and all of the revolutionary movements since then uh, represent is the idea of revolution as something transformative, something that can pass through the entire social body, transforming people's relations with each other, transforming their roles, transforming how we see ourselves. And this is not something that is about exterminating the other, but that is rather about... Uh, transforming our relations collectively. And so this is what we saw when we reopened the books and looked back through the different examples from history about what the guillotine is, has been used for. We, we saw that actually the revolutionaries that are whose visions and whose strategies were closest to our hearts were the ones who burned the guillotine, not the ones who employed it. Like at, at the heart of um this let's call it let's just call it like the the article does like the, the logic of the guillotine is a, is a desire for revenge like that's very obvious one very popular one is a gif of uh, i think it's uh, alfred hitchcock uh you know having the guillotine behind him and it's just used at any kind of tweet by um people uh, or corporations even uh general actors that uh to put it uh, mildly as well i don't uh, i don't particularly fancy but it's very interesting that uh the way the way you've written your piece you you do mention that you know this feeling all too well you you understand the feeling of revenge and indeed i i do as well 
And so I'm going to read a sh short quote here as well, if that's okay. Um, do I want to take revenge on the police officers who murder people with impunity, on the billionaires who cash in on exploitation and gentrification, on the bigots who harass and dox people? Yes, of course I do. They have killed people I knew. They are trying to destroy everything I love. When I think about the harm they are causing, I feel ready to break their bones, to kill them with my bare hands. So if that's the case, of course, like one devil's advocate would ask, uh, so why don't we? Or rather, like, wh why shouldn't we uh, take revenge? Right. Well, the, the article goes on to make the argument that, that one can desire something. Mm -hmm. One can want something without therefore having to reverse engineer a revolutionary justification for why doing the thing that you desire is the most strategic or intelligent decision you know that, that you, you can want something and still not do it if you want something else more which is for example to participate in a collective horizontal decentralized uh, revolutionary movement to transform our relations it, it is absolutely true that you know we as uh, you know, those suffering in the capitalist system and, and we as the specific people who worked on this text are angry and, and desire revenge to some extent and, and also that we believe that in some situations it's necessary to employ coercive force to defend spaces of liberation. All of these things are true. But the, the question is, when we are doing those things, what is our long-term vision? for how that will bring about a situation that will be better for everyone, even including the authorities that we are forced to, to rise up against, or at least their children. Because mm -hmm. the, the guillotine in modern day means it represents revenge, but historically, above all, it represents control. Historically, it represents the rights of the sovereign to take life, to end life. And through that, the means of exerting control over the population by, by fear and terror, which is associated with the French Revolution in the 1790s, but really terror has always been employed above all by state forces that don't even have to acknowledge the ways that they use terror and can say that terror is the province of extra-state or para-state entities or smaller entities that aspire to state power. So for us, the, the question is, can we employ these means to bring about the situation that, that we desire? And if the guillotine is fundamentally about control, but what we want most of all is to create a situation in which, uh, because power is distributed horizontally, no one is able to dominate and control each other. The, the conclusion for us is that uh, exterminatory force, including the guillotine and all other social technologies of control, uh, these are not the things that we should be aspiring to gain control of. And I, I don't want to shame anyone who desires revenge, especially those who have suffered more than I have. I think it is absolutely understandable why people desire and, and fantasize about revenge. But in terms of the fantasies that we legitimize and the visions that we spread when we talk about the world that we want to arrive in, I think precisely because we may be fortunate enough to succeed in changing the world, that we have a 
a serious responsibility to express visions that that really point towards something more beautiful than what exists today. And, and so when we're choosing between the different fantasies that we have, choosing which of these we want to lend political weight and legitimacy to, that that we should really invest the most political legitimacy and the most value in the, the fantasies that point to a world in, in which we could collectively transform our relations. And this doesn't mean that it won't be necessary for us at some points to engage in bitter struggles, including violence, but that we should go into those struggles not relishing violence, not thinking that more guns means more revolution, not thinking that the more deaths occur or the more killings we carry out, the more revolutionary we are. This is, for me, this is really the wrong way to think about it. And I can't say that I always live up to this, but I always carry with me this quotation from William Morris, a anti-state socialist from the late 1800s in Britain, um, who, after the police attacked a demonstration in Trafalgar Square, in, in some grievous and irresponsible and destructive police ta- attack, just like the police violence that we see all around the world today, uh, and there were calls for revenge in response to this, which, as I'm saying, are understandable and, and to some extent legitimate. William Morris said, the only real revenge that we could possibly have would be by our own efforts to bring ourselves to happiness. Mm-hmm. And like I said, this is, not, this is not an aspiration that I always live up to, but I think that is a, a beautiful way of thinking that we should cultivate in ourselves if we can. And when we're talking about which desires to give political weight and legitimacy to, we should look to the parts of ourselves in which we are able to imagine that one day we might be able to abolish all of the forms of power and oppression that turn us against each other today. Those are the fantasies we should we should direct ourselves to. And if, if we must fantasize about revenge, it would be more honorable to fantasize about our revolutionary movements becoming so powerful that our oppressors will no longer be able to wield power over us and that we won't even have to kill them to be to be able to become free. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, one thing that I really liked about the piece is that there is there really is no judgment of people who do desire this. And I also completely agree with you. I, I don't live up to it myself. Uh, a lot of the time I you know I can go through dark thoughts as I'm sure many people do although it's um, I think that there's an issue with not always wanting to express it this way but yeah one um, another com- another uh, component of your piece that I actually quite like is when you compare the to uh, when you compare the logic of the guillotine as being all about efficiency and distance and you even compare it to those who uh, you know, eat chicken McNuggets, but would never personally butcher a cow or cut down a rainforest. And um, you also then went on to compare the Jacobins at the time with the Bolsheviks uh, about a century ago, who, who reproduced this quote-unquote impersonal functioning of the capitalist state. So my question is, um, the way the guillotine logic is expressed online is often quote-unquote jokingly. 
and you know it has kind of turned into a way for leftists and radicals to in a sense perform their identity of being le of leftism or radicalism and i'm emphasizing the ism here if i as someone uh, who comes from a region because i'm from lebanon who comes from a region with its fair share of bloodshed and if I, when that had, this has happened a number of times, when I publicly express reservation at these images and these memes, it's actually fairly common to see people just reply with more of the same memes. As it's kind of like the accusation is essentially that you're being too soft, you're a liberal, uh, you know, something along those lines, uh, which in itself I think is quite revealing. So, you know, what does being too soft mean? I think there's, there's quite a gendered uh, way of uh, interpreting um, what softness mean in this case but like the same circles that would oppose rhetorically at least as you said like their own state's oppression suddenly find themselves supporting the very logic of state repression itself and my question is and maybe like you can approach it as, as you want because it it maybe it's a bit too vague i don't know but this for me i feel like it's inherently a way of avoiding responsibility like as you write they don't actually have to get their hands bloody that's that's one uh, thing about the guillotine you know that's that's how the executions would happen in saudi arabia as well it's not guillotine necessarily it might be hangings or something else at some point where the guillotine is actually more mechanical than than hanging so yeah i'll, I'll be curious if you would agree with the statement that in a way this is a way of avoiding responsibility of avoiding your own the, the moral implication of what it means that you have killed someone well this is a very interesting question about responsibility for me it's interwoven with the essence of authoritarianism you know if the if the essence of authoritarianism is to delegate your responsibility to the reigning authorities then it wouldn't be surprising that we would see uh, people who are engaging in authoritarian fantasy or authoritarian memes not wishing to take full responsibility for the things they're calling for. In the same way that, um, that people in an authoritarian state who essentially support or identify with the reigning powers, they might not carry out the same brutality and bloodshed themselves, but they delegate their resources and the, you know, and they legitimize the, the reigning powers and the violence they carry out. You know? And it's possible for people to legitimize and support things that they would themselves if they're protected from them by a, a layer of distance. That could be ironic distance, as in the case of the, the memes. It could be real distance, as in the case of the person who eats chicken McNuggets but would never work in a, uh, like a chicken killing factory you know um but the you know the abnegation or sorry the uh what's the word for it the the evasion of responsibility is is common to all of these examples from my perspective the fundamental anarchist critique is that there is no way for us to avoid responsibility for our actions for the things that we support you know, for the for the implications and the consequences of our of our deeds and of our speech, because speech is is a form of action. Um, so, in, you know, in response to this 
texts that we published, we've seen a lot of different kinds of responses. You know, people say, well, the guillotine doesn't mean, mean what you think it means. People can use symbols to mean whatever they want. People say, well, nobody remembers the history, and that's fine. People don't need to understand the history. Uh, nobody says what they say they're going to do anyway. There's no real consequences to people fantasizing about this. Um, for me, all of these are, again, they're sort of irresponsible objections because, first of all, um, symbols are not just tools that ha are a blank slate. Every symbol carries with it you know, hundreds of years. A symbol like this carries with it you know, 250 years of associations and implications. And we may think that we're using the, the symbols to mean whatever we want, but often the symbols through us are replicating and along with them the ideology that they imply is passed on from one person to the next because a guillotine is it's not a tool like a can opener it's a it's a tool that implies a state structure to be employed and similarly the idea that that we can just inscribe our own aspirations onto these without any reference to history as an aspiring revolutionary, I think that we should always be studying what the what previous revolutionaries, what previous human beings have experienced, so that we can develop uh, our hypotheses responsibly about what will happen if we take certain courses of action. And the you know the hypothesis that seizing the state could be a step towards uh, a utopia that in which class would be abolished, for example, that, that, that has been thoroughly tested now in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. and, and we should learn from those tests. You know? and, and from all of the experiments that people have made using centralized coercion to, to try to improve uh, human life. You know? And then finally, the, the idea that people don't have to be responsible for the, you know, for the memes that they post because nobody's going to do what they say they're going to do anyway. Nobody's going to follow through on their actions. For, for me, this is, it's just very far from the kind of conduct that we aspire to engage in. For us, every time we say something, we should, we should say things that we are prepared to do, that we intend to do. Mm -hmm. you know, we are serious as aspiring participants in social transformation. And when we affirm something, we should affirm things that we are really willing to, to risk our lives to carry out and that we think are worth risking life to take, you know, to, to, to implement as far as social change goes. That doesn't mean people can't joke. It doesn't mean that, you know, that we can't speak lightly and freely and easily, but, but it does mean that when we're fantasizing, we should, we should think about what the implications of our fantasies are because it often happens that, um, in revolutionary situations that your fantasies sometimes come true on a much bigger scale than anyone could have anticipated. Yeah. There is this uh, excellent line by George Orwell, which I'm, I'm still a bit mind blown by. It sometimes feels like there's an Orwell quote for everything. But um, he was describing British Stalinists of the 1930s. And so, so this is the quote. To people of that kind, 
such things as purges, secret police, summary executions, imprisonment without trial, etc., etc., are too remote. <clears throat> sorry, are too remote to be terrifying. They can swallow totalitarianism because they have no experience of anything except liberalism. So, like this sentence really, really hit home for me because it's um, it's been one of the main uh, one of my, the main sources of frustration for me in recent years when dealing with many. Uh, authoritarians on the left, especially Western leftists these days when it comes to quote-unquote um, anti-imperialism, and I insist on putting it uh, under quotation here, uh, because, you know, for those who don't know, and I have some numbers here, the Middle East and North Africa is basically where the overwhelming majority of all de death sentences happen outside of China, because in China we don't actually have the numbers, so we don't really know. So in 2017, 85% uh, of all death sentences, again, outside of China, were by Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq alone. So the memes of guillotines are sort of like, it's too close to home to make that kind of joke. They, they just don't fit in the same way. It's, there's nothing edgy about it, in a sense. If that, that's, We would not be using that to kind of outperform one another, in a sense. Well, at least that, in my experience, I may be wrong about this. At worst, um, like you might see people online wishing, and I've done this dozens of times, that a figure like uh, you know a Bashar al-Assad gets killed, some someone who's like, it's you you kind of symbolize a whole regime by one person, and that's in, in, indeed the case in Syria. That's when you might see some uh, desires or you know revenge fantasies or that kind of thing. But other than that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're talking about a, a case in, the, in this, uh, such an extreme case of a man lit behind literally hundreds of thousands of that. So it's not like we're talking about this uh, billionaire who is, is definitely exploitative and needs to be stopped. Or we're talking about something that really feels that it's beyond anything that can be remotely tolerable. And at the same time, I guess there's a lot of an anecdotal evidence, I think, anyway. And again, I may be wrong about this, but showing that those... In my experience, anyway, those most likely to use these memes are also maybe not more likely, but just as likely to whitewash or support regimes that are outside of the West. Let's say, quote unquote, again, anti-imperialist regimes or those that call themselves anti-imperialist regimes like Putin's regime, like Assad's regime, like the Chinese state and so on. And it to bring up um, this to, I don't know how to actually phrase this question, but like when we speak of the logic of the guillotine, a country like Syria has essentially industrialized it. Like this is yes. what, what it looks like to me when I, I see the end goal of what this logic can, can actually lead to. And it definitely feels far, far removed from the intention and the day-to-day -day practices of those who seem to be using it quite a lot uh, these days online in the form of, of a meme. Uh, well, first of all, does, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, I want to be clear. I'm speaking to you from the United States. Mm -hmm. So the Orwell quote that, that you read and that we included in the text is sort of a dig at, uh, at people who use guillotine memes, but who live in first world liberal so-called democracies. Um, and I, you were talking about if you object to people using these memes, they accuse you of being soft. Yes. Um, and I, I don't want, in response, to be saying, no, you're the one that's soft. You know, I, uh, I don't want to be <laughs> just trying to turn that insult around on people. 
Um, but it is true that that one of the things in our in our collective in our networks you know, when we're talking about um, you know like systematized coercive force we try to be in dialogue with people who have experienced that on a large scale so you know one of the one of the reference points that i have for uh the consequences of, of war is that all the people in the balkans and the mid-east that have participated in, in crime think projects and have been able to to report on their firsthand experiences in, in war so that when you know and when we are uh formulating analyses that we're not doing that in a totally abstract way when again as i was saying before when you're distanced from something, when you're looking at a list of deaths just as numbers rather than as something that, that could happen to, to someone that you love or to your neighbor, uh, it's, it's much easier to say, you know, would 17,000 deaths be worth it to abolish capitalism? Sure, that sounds great, which is a totally different uh, thing than when you have firsthand experience seeing a model employed and seeing what the consequences are. So yeah, I don't I don't want to say that those who endorse authoritarian models are are soft. Um, some of them may, you know, on the contrary, may have experience with much greater violence than I personally have experienced. Um, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying about the way that in the West, certain sort of certain forms of so-called anti-imperialism just end up being endorsements of the smaller scale imperialism of other nation states that basically replicate you know, what the big imperial powers are trying to do just from the other direction. And if you have no critique of the state itself and you decide that some of the state actors that exist in the world must be the good states in contrast to the other bad states, I guess you would end up figuring out how to justify the destructive behavior and the destructive systems of, of whichever states you decide are the good ones. But for me personally, that model of analysis is fundamentally wrong. That what we actually need to be doing is looking to see what is it that state power actually does to human beings, to the ones within the state and to the ones on the receiving end of that state's violence inside or outside of its borders. And how can we completely delegitimize all centralized uh, exterminatory force in, in favor of models that are, are based in mutual aid, coexistence, and opposition to oppression. Hi, my name is Efe Levant. I am the editor-in-chief of Mangal Media, an online publication for writers and artists from the so-called periphery. We publish a wide range of material, including investigative journalism, personal essays, and short stories. We, of course, also share memes on social media, 
Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. So make sure to also check out our Patreon page and browser exclusive supporter rewards. So I wonder um, if we can. Uh, I wonder if we can expand on this sentence because I really feel like, in some ways, it's the crux of your piece. Uh, I'm, I'm quoting here: "When we see ourselves as fighting against specific human beings rather than social phenomena, it becomes more difficult to recognize the ways that we ourselves participate in those phenomena." And I guess, in some ways, this it, it goes back as well to to responsibility because at the end of the day. Or maybe we can we can actually answer it in this. You can answer it in this way. Can you tell me a bit about some of the reactions? You said that there have been lots of reactions to the piece. What have been some of the ways that crime think as a collective, or maybe you personally, or maybe you've seen other people do it? I don't know. Try to make the the case that um, it does actually matter that we see this as as as, as human beings that we don't just see these as abstractions. Well, it's a, it's a good question. The, first, to begin with, the, the, basic, um, the basic argument, you know, that our enemies are not specific other human beings. Our enemies are certain dynamics. You know? Like, our enemy is not our oppressor. Our enemy is oppression. Mm-hmm. So we, we may have to fight. We may even have to kill some oppressors to you know, to bring about the abolition of the forms of oppression that we're fighting. But we should keep our focus not on the, the extermination of the other, but on the, the transformation of the relationship, right? That is the, the fundamental argument here. Um, and this is necessary, first of all, because all the models for embodying the enemy uh, are, are based in well, or are at least uh, reminiscent of the kind of xenophobia that we see in, uh, you know, Islamophobia, for example, or anti-Semitism. This is a, a problem that you know that often happens um, in the anti-capitalist movement when people say, "Oh, the, the problem is the bankers," you know, rather than the existence of private property, and a system of capital accumulation. A free market that renders us less free. You know, and as soon as you say, "Well, the problem is these bankers," or, or "The problem is these heads of state," then it becomes easy to think about how to replace the bankers with better bankers. You know, or or a commissar that would take over the the distribution of, of resources in some comparably hierarchical way. You know, or to replace the heads of state with other heads of state who inevitably would also concentrate power without undoing the, the situation. So as long as we are regarding the enemy as an embodied other, uh, we are likely to replicate the same problems. You know, in terms of the new structures we set up, we are likely to end up going after those who are already targeted. You know? And this is an interesting historical point. When we looked up who it was that had been executed by guillotine in the original French Revolution, it turns out that the majority of the people who were executed were poor people, were not like famous people or aristocrats. It wasn't just that a bunch of aristocrats were, were marched to the guillotine. It was a bunch of commoners were marched to, the, to these executions. And also, a lot of the people who were executed were 
radicals and revolutionaries, uh, including people who were more radical and more revolutionary than Robespierre's government that organized the executions. So, you know, when we're when we're talking about embodying the enemy as as specific other human beings, uh, this is a, a counter-revolutionary phenomenon or a counter-revolutionary approach, as well as an approach that's likely to end up in xenophobia and the, the targeting of those who are already most likely to be targeted and to be killed in our existing order. By contrast, if we're able to identify the, the dynamics that we oppose and the world that we want to arrive in, if we're able to identify those things, that gives us a vision that we can that we can mobilize around, that we can try to present to others, that we can show, you know, if not the the people that we struggle against, we can at least show their children, their relatives, the the value of this and and why we are fighting for it. And finally, it gives us an opportunity and a, a way to evaluate our our own actions and see how they could be better. You know, to to be able to if we if we can say we are not the good ones. We are not the ones who, by definition, in the struggle are the ones who should win, no matter how we behave. That gives us an opportunity to be more critical of our own actions, more critical of our own uh, efforts, and and to constantly be reviewing and critiquing and improving the, the things we do so that they will better uh, embody the the kinds of dynamics and the kinds of behavior that we're trying to see in the world. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Is there anything that you feel that we can have touched upon but didn't have time to? Well, there's a, a lot to, to discuss yeah. on this subject. I mean, it relates to all the different ways that we conceptualize revolution. There are certainly drawbacks and not simply trying to kill the enemy when you're talking about revolutionary strategy but there are also advantages to it you know, I, I would fundamentally I would, I would point to a model for revolutionary transformation in which rather than trying to constitute an army that seeks to defeat a, a rival army by force of arms we recognize that the way that we are most likely to succeed is by generating a contagious model for resistance that points to a better way of living and that you know that if we can do this in such a way that others will see its value and that it and that this vision and that these new desires will will uh, will spread even into those who currently work to maintain the existing order that is how we we hope to transform it. The reason that the Paris Commune, to, to, be, to return to the beginning, the reason that the Paris Commune was able to succeed at all was because when people were revolting and the army was called in, the National Guard was called in to repress them, uh, the, and the National Guardsmen were ordered to turn their guns on the, the rebels that that they ultimately, they, they found that they could not shoot down the, the, like, the, the rebels in the poor Paris neighborhoods and the, and the women who confronted them 
bravely in the, in the streets. And the, the members of the National Guard turned their guns upside down, refused to obey the orders of their generals, and, and joined with the, the poor rebels from the, the poor neighborhoods in Paris and, and joined in saying, the generals and the, and the politicians and the wealthy capitalists are our enemy, not each other. This is, this is a, a step that, that made it possible for them to open up this space of experimentation. And the next step is to make that spread. If we, if we understand what we're doing as a, as a fight between, um, yeah, between rival armies, then it will probably always end the way the Paris Commune ended when it turned out that the army of conservative Republican France, backed by all of the Prussian military, uh, it turned out that that was more powerful than the self-organized, you know, military of the Paris Commune. So the real question is, can our visions, can our subversive strategies spread beyond one social body, beyond one ethnic group, beyond one continent? Can they spread into something that can, uh, into a worldwide movement that can destabilize will and powers everywhere? And we're in a time where the continuation of our species is not even certain, you know, where there's a lot of different dangers facing us. But this is also a time of possibility when if we can demonstrate better models for how human beings can relate to each other and secure each other's survival and needs, many people will want to be with us. So we have, a, again, we have a tremendous responsibility in this moment to do our best to do that. So, I want to conclude, I guess, by saying my point here is not to win an argument uh, about you know, whether guillotine memes are best. You know, I, I'm not here to try to, um, to 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 show that like our collective is smarter than other people who post things. That's not the point. The point for us is that we are participants in struggle and. We believe that the language and the imagery that we use in that struggle is important. We just want to engage it in a constructive, strategic debate with other comrades about about which imagery, which rhetoric, which discourse, which desires uh, are most likely to get us to the place that, that we want to be. So if you're listening to this, don't agree with everything that we said, that's fine. We still consider you comrades and hope to work with you. That's, that's the bottom line. Thank you for giving me this, uh, this platform and this opportunity to speak with you and with others. My pleasure. Thank you for this really interesting conversation. Thank you.